Most of you know that um, out of high school, I, I joined a religious order. And uh, so I went from uh, East L.A., basically, right on the line of East L.A., out to the cornfields outside of Chicago for the House of Formation. And I didn't last long. I realized early on it wasn't my vocation. Um, but I always had a certain reverence for the order, of course, and, and a fond memory of, of the place. You know, the, it was called Ryan Hall, and I was in Ryan Hall and, and just remembering the grounds and, and what it looked like. And I remember going back, oh gosh, I don't know how many years it was later, I was passing just through Chicago, so I took the detour because I just wanted to see the place again. You know, you do that every once in a while, return to the scene of the crime. And uh, it was so changed. And as I stood there looking at it, it looked, it looked tired. It looked run down. It didn't look the way I remembered it. And then the door opens and girls walked out of it. And I, and I realized that the order had sold the building. You know, they had contracted. They weren't able to, to maintain anymore. The high school that I went to that was taught by the brothers has uh, now been taken over by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. And so it's no longer part of the Congregation of Christian Brothers that I entered. And this has been indicative of, I'm sure you have... You know, you've heard, you've read that religious vocations have been shrinking consistently for, for several decades now, pretty much since the 60s, the mid-60s, um, which is interesting. There are now thousands of parishes in the Catholic Church that don't have resident priests anymore. And um, even though there are some signs that young adults are becoming interested in vocations again, you know what the main blockage is for them to be able to go into an order? I just read this last night. It's just like, you got to be kidding me. It's student loans, student debt. They, they come out of college, they are so burdened with student debt that the order can't afford to take them on and pay the debt. And so um, they've come up with some plans where they're paying the minimum until the fifth anniversary of their of their final vows, and then they pay off the loan. And, but it's a really interesting thing that's going on but if you think about it, it's not hard to imagine. Um, the, especially the Catholic Church has been rocked with so much scandal. It's really hurt the image, especially among young people. And then also celibacy. Need I say more? You know, it's really tough for people to make those kinds of vows, especially in in this day and age. And so I was just thinking about that. You know, 30 years, almost 30 years, being kind to myself, 45 years ago when I went into the, the monastery, 40 years ago, whatever it's been now, um, I had a certain view of the religious life. And that view is changing and shrinking. And, and as time goes on, it's becoming more and more difficult. But then last, a uh, couple days ago, Marion sent me an article. And this article was just fascinating to me. And I did some more research beyond this article, and I want to read you three little stories because what it speaks to is a shift in the way that we are perceiving spirituality, the way that we're perceiving religion uh, in this country, and, and how that is moving and shaking as people are trying to sort things out. You know, the world is getting scarier and scarier and less and less stable from our um, you know, perception. And so that's driving a lot of this as well. But this is a, a story about the, uh, some Carmelite nuns. And so just take a, take a listen for a second. And it's uh, a little more than I normally read, but just, just hang with me. This comes from Fairfield, Pennsylvania, and it was, it was just dated a couple days ago. In an age where religious professions are in decline, especially in the United States, one order is looking back in time to buck the trend. 
The discalced Carmelites. Don't you love that word, discalced Carmelites? Anyone know what that means, discalced Carmelite? It means without shoes. Discalced means shoeless. And they walk around barefoot or they just wear sandals. It's, it's again, it's just like the Franciscans. It was all about maintaining a, a spirit of humility and poverty, vulnerability. But the discalced Carmelites... All right, have turned from the modern church's reforms of the 1960s and embraced ancient traditions, particularly the traditional Latin mass. And now their order is booming with multiple at-capacity monasteries dotted in the eastern U.S. If you're not from the Catholic Church and you don't remember what happened in the mid-60s with Vatican II, all the reforms took place. And so the ancient rite of the Latin Mass was changed into the vernacular, in our case, English. The altar, which faced away from the congregation, was turned around. Tons of changes were made, both stylistic and substantive, to try to modernize the church. All right? So, since that time... Orders have been emptying out, and vocations have been uh, on the decline. Coincidence? Since 2000, the Carmelites have been faced with a sort of challenge many religious orders pine for, a boom in vocations. In that year, the nuns moved into the monastery at Ellisburg, Pennsylvania, from their original home in Nebraska, which they soon outgrew. They were thus granted permission to take over another declining Carmelite monastery, the Carmel of St. Joseph and St. Anne in Philadelphia, and filled that one with vocations as well. So finally, with the community having overflowed its lodgings twice, the Carmelites received permission last summer to expand operations again, this time constructing a new monastery from the ground up. That's how the Carmel at Fairfield, still under construction but already in operation, was born. Women interested in a life with the cloistered Carmelites must meet a number of qualifications. Postulants, that's first year when you go in. Postulants need a high school education and to be in good health, coming in in an age range of 17 to their late 20s. Though Mother Stella Marie of Jesus, who heads the Fairfield Monastery, said that inquirers tend to be between 17 and 24. Currently, the monastery at Fairfield has 10 professed members with more on the way from around the globe, including as far as Sweden. So these are really young girls. It's not the older. These are young girls. Now listen to this. This is what they're letting themselves in for. The cloistered nuns at the Carmel in Fairfield close themselves off from the world and devote the rest of their lives to strict silence, arduous labor, and prayer. Once they profess their vows, their faces may not be seen in photographs until after they die. When LifeSite News traveled to Pennsylvania to profile the monastery, Mother Stella gave her interview from behind a heavy grate, the same grate through which the Carmelites are permitted to speak to their family members a single time a year. I think the young women are drawn to beauty in the liturgy. They know that if God exists, if God is on our altars, if God is within the holy sacrifice of the Mass, then he needs to be worshipped as he deserves, with a beauty and reverence, she said, of what she thinks draws young women to the Carmelites in particular. They see that we have that here in our monastery, and they want to be a part of that. They also want something that is authentic, that goes back to the time of our Holy Mother, St. Teresa. So, Here's this boom in this one order at a time when Catholic numbers are falling across the board, both in the laity and then also in the clergy. And as I said, since Vatican II reforms, since everything was modernized, isn't it ironic that the ones that are booming are the ones that are going back to the future here? 
and pulling in all the ancient rites and basically undoing a lot of the reforms that Vatican II did to try to make it accessible to the culture. And now the culture is rejecting that and wanting to... I mean, I, I just find this so fascinating. There's another uh, monastery in, in Upper State New York called New Skidi. Um, uh, Skidi was the, one of the original monastic orders in the deserts of Egypt back in the 3rd, 4th century. New Skidi is an Orthodox community, and they basically did the same thing. They outgrew one place, another place, and then built their place that they're in now. And uh, you may know these guys because they're famous for raising uh, German shepherds. And they've written books on the training of German shepherds and the care of German shepherds. So this monastic order has uh, been able to survive a lot from that type. And they also make jelly that's supposed to be to die for and stuff. But I digress. The point is, they go back to the ancient rites of the Orthodox Church and do sort of the same thing. And the Orthodox Church is growing in America, which you, you you wouldn't expect. And now converts... You know, normally people are just born into the church, right? And that's where they keep their numbers up. Or they marry into the church. But converts, including those who marry into the church, are now becoming a large percentage of their overall congregation, which is growing in the United States. So here's story number two. Growing up a Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist in eastern Tennessee, Brent Gilbert says he never realized there were other ways to worship. He figured everyone knew the best church music was contemporary, right? He was sure that there was a 45-minute pastor's sermon at the heart of every Sunday service. I tried to do a little better than that. And didn't all Christians agree that religious art, symbols, and rituals were relics of a less desirable past? Then he encountered the ancient faith that would change his life. In the formal liturgy, rituals, and language of the Greek Orthodox Church, he found a worship tradition so enriched by its direct link to the lives of Christ's original followers that it turns faith into an all-encompassing phenomenon, quote-unquote, as he says. Gilbert is neither ethnically nor culturally Greek. His forebears came to America from the British Isles, but after discernment and years of study, he's now the Reverend Gregory Gilbert the presiding priest of Saints Mary Magdalene and Markella Greek Orthodox Church in Darlington, which is in Maryland near Baltimore. And a prominent example of the gradual but insistent wave of conversion that is turning a tradition long rooted in ethnic heritage into a more varied and some say more American movement. Almost half of the nearly one million Orthodox Christians in the United States today are converts. The Assembly of Canonical Orthodox Bishops of the United States of America reported in 2015. The majority of these married into the church, but a growing number are joining simply out of an affinity for the faith. Converts to Orthodoxy come from many backgrounds. Former evangelicals in search of historicity. Analytical Christians seeking something more hands-on. Weekend churchgoers in search of a fuller, more regular engagement. Gilbert says he has found a way of life that can be judged by its fruits. Americans have imbibed the idea that Christianity began about 500 years ago at the time of the Reformation. This is uh, Gilbert talking. But that view overlooks three-fourths of the history of the church. The bearded 39-year-old says and laughs, Orthodoxy is a well-worn spiritual path more than an institution, and we know it has been producing saints for 2,000 years. So, I've witnessed this myself um, you know, over the last 
20 years or so, especially when I was teaching um, at a Bible college, the young men there were talking about Orthodox churches. They were talking about some evangelical churches where the pastor had converted and you know tried to change the whole church into Orthodoxy, which was a disaster, as you can imagine. But that they were intrigued and attracted to a lot of these ancient rites, the ancient language. Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy has a concept of, that they call theosis. And we've talked about it in here before. But it is, re, it is the process of becoming more and more godlike. In fact, it literally means divination. But they understand it not as becoming God, but becoming more and more godlike in the way that Jesus talked about, I and the Father are one. You don't need to see the Father. You've seen me. It was the same idea that there is a becoming. There is this process you know, the Western Church calls it sanctification, but they take it to another level. It becomes a real part of their spiritual formation. And they have a different take on theology, too. Where in the West, we tend to see theology as making definitive and absolute statements about God's nature. The East takes a much more open-handed view, where theology is simply there to limit error. It shows you where the guardrails are, beyond which you're really going to fall off into abusive behavior. But here, in this playing field, this is up to you. Find your faith. Find what you're convinced of. These kinds of differences from the ancient rituals and rites, from, from those roots going down deep to these ideas about what it means to be a follower of Christ, are attracting people. They, they see here an actual pathway, a, an affirmative becoming action that they can take and not just more of a passive sense of salvation. You know, if we believe right, if we obey right, that we are going to be saved sometime in the future, it all becomes very immediate in these other phases. Many evangelicals are gravitating also toward the contemplative and the mystical, which is that direct experience of God's presence. Even without leaving their churches, they're starting to experiment more with contemplative practice, which is, of course, our bread and butter here, right? But evangelicals are starting to experiment with it. And boy, is that blowing up the old guard. Now, just, just put into Google, you know, evangelicals leaning toward mysticism or something and, and see what comes up. It is vicious. <laughs> because they're, 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 they're just, you know, the, the take on mysticism for so long has been that it's a cult and it's evil and it's demonic and all this. And so now more and more of a percentage of evangelicals are starting to turn to it. I remember, you know, we started the effect actually at uh, Capo Beach Church when Chuck Smith Jr. was still head pastor over there. And um, I remember, you know, he would hit a series of mission trips over to Russia and just became completely enamored of the Eastern or the Russian Orthodox Church. And he came back and he posted large icons. You know what icons are? The ancient uh, images uh, of Jesus and, and Mary and saints and whatnot. And he posted them in the sanctuary. And he started doing benedictions at the end of his services, which included the sign of the cross. And that just bent people's minds sideways, you can imagine. But he, was, he had that same desire to connect with something that had deeper roots than anything that we typically experience here, uh, especially with the 500 years since the Reformation and even shallower roots here in this country. He was looking for that deeper connection, and he tried to bring it to his church. And it was basically a countdown to him stepping down from that church, you know, and that's what happened. But he continues on with his tradition. 
And, and it's a beautiful thing to see. But it's, it's, it's so interesting what's going on here. And the third story has to do with millennials. Now, these are the, are the young folks around us, you know, the early 20s to early 30s. And they are turning more and more to contemplative and mystical type practice. Sometimes not in a church setting at all. But listen to this last story. Anthony, oh gosh, how am I gonna? I should have thought through this name. Uh, Grafanino, Grafanino, I think you would say. Anthony Grafanino describes himself spiritually as both frustrated and curious. A Pentecostal turned Unitarian. Now there you go. A Pentecostal turned Unitarian. The 28-year-old Grafanino said he has had his fill with stale and dead expressions of faith that I saw really doing nothing to better the people around me or the world around me. Discovering the Christian mystical tradition through the work of Franciscan friar uh, Richard Rohr helped change that. Father Richard's work allowed an entryway into Christianity when I didn't think there was any, said Grafanino, who is studying to be an interfaith chaplain at Star King School for the Ministry, a Unitarian Universalist Seminary in Berkeley, California. That's a mouthful. And you can imagine, (laughs) Steve knows what that's going to look like. Pentecostal in his early childhood, Unitarian through his teen years, and then spiritually unaffiliated until he began flirting with the Quakers in his late 20s. Grafanino also has explored Vedic Hinduism, spiritual Taoism, mystical Judaism, and Sufism. Rohr's work has been a bridge between those spiritual traditions and his native Christianity, where they have found a resting place in my own backyard, he said. While many younger Americans today are spiritually unaffiliated, also known as the nuns, have you heard that before? That's N-O-N-E-S, not nuns, the nuns. In other words, they would check the box nun in terms of religious affiliation. A quarter of all adults under the age of 30 in the United States say they don't identify with any religion or spiritual tradition, according to the Pew Center for Religion and Public Life. Millennials are increasingly finding contemplative spirituality appealing. One of my publishers, this is Richard Rohr talking, one of my publishers says younger Christians are my biggest demographic. Now, this is Richard Rohr, who's 76 years old. But the publisher is saying that the biggest demographic, one of the publishers saying, are younger Christians. Not Catholics, but post-evangelicals. Now, isn't that interesting? Rohr said, whether it's in the stillness of silent meditation, walking a labyrinth, or centering prayer, the practice of engaging with Scripture through Lectio Divina, the Ignatian traditions daily examine, or a combination of Buddhist mindfulness, Kundalini breathwork, and Teze prayer, many young adults are happy, to borrow a line from Van Morrison, to sail into the mystic. Now, this is fascinating to me because this young man's journey is so similar to mine. Now, 30 years ago, when I was in my early 30s, I had uh, been out of any church affiliation for probably close to 15 years. And the last affiliation I had was the Catholic Church in the monastery. When I left the monastery, I effectively left the Catholic Church, not on purpose, really. It was just kind of, it just didn't seem relevant. And I, 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 the 20s were all about music, you know, and trying to write songs and do that. But in the early 30s, when my life bottomed out and I hit that bottom, 
there was this absolute need to find something, to try to connect, to find meaning and purpose that gave me a reason to get up in the morning and breathe again and some kind of sense of identity. But I figured Christianity had been there and done that, so I looked everywhere else. You know, I looked in religious science. I, I looked in theosophy. I looked in Eastern practices and Eastern uh, philosophies. I even experimented with uh, what you could say, I suppose, occult practices, clairvoyance and remote viewing and all that sort of thing, uh, pyramidology, astral projection, lucid dreaming. I mean, you name it, I was looking for it. I was looking for something. But I think it's because I was so focused on trying to find something that felt true, that really down to my socks was true, that I would spend some time in these areas, but then I would realize, now this isn't it. Next, 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 next. And then a friend, uh, actually it was uh, one of the employees in my, uh, at my work, um, invited me to church, and it happened to be the church down in Laguna Niguel where I was eventually ordained. But even walking in there and feeling like I came home again to Jesus, it was so vastly different because Catholic church to a converted warehouse with a full band on stage and a grand piano and everybody standing, and it was so different, and yet at the same time, it felt connected again. It felt like I was bridging that time from Christianity to Christianity. And yet within a few years, here I was banging up against what, feel, what felt absurd to me, what, what theologically didn't seem to hold water and make common sense. But instead of running, I decided to stay and try to figure this thing out. And so I was already in pastoral training by that time, and so I made the focus Christian origins because I figured that's where truth is going to be um, best held. And uh, that led me to the Hebrew roots of Christianity, which I had never heard before, and then to the ancient languages. And then I found this Jesus that I know I can follow for the rest of my life. But that journey had to go in all those directions for me. I had to play the process of elimination. And this young man apparently needed to do the same thing. It's gone in all these directions. And so many of our young people need to. But what is going on here, I think is a deep yearning for something that has roots, something that really connects with us at some deep level. Um, I felt the same pull that so many of these young people are feeling today for these deep roots, something that will anchor us in an increasingly shallow world, a world that seems so slippery and so difficult to, to navigate. And although I did have some romantic ideas of joining the Franciscans at that time, and I was thinking, ah, maybe I could do this, actually. This is before you, Marion. Right. And, uh, and other just kind of you know, frivolous ideas of going to Gethsemane where Thomas Merton was and the, and the Cistercian order there. Uh, I really realized that this wasn't an external journey. This was an interior journey. And I could do it right in place. I didn't have to go anywhere. I didn't have to change churches. I had to change myself. And I had to take this journey to see if I could find those roots and find something that made sense. Now, this isn't to say that ancient rites can't help. They can. But ultimately, it's about going within. And this is what we've been trying to do here is to go within. Yes, we are contemporary in feel. Yes, this would not be confused for a church by most people, I guess. But there is a sense here that we're trying to do exactly this because we know that there's something that is missing when we don't. 
You ever heard of a phantom limb? You know what that is? When an amputee loses a limb, they still feel like it's there. Typically it's painful, but they feel that it's there. There is a part of us... uh, I love it. There is a part of us that has been amputated. When we are disconnected from our roots, we were disconnected from our tradition, our people, and we feel it. We know there's something that's supposed to be there, and it's not. Maybe it's the opposite of a phantom limb. I don't know. But this is the image that came to mind. I felt like there was something there that was supposed to be there, and I couldn't see it. I couldn't get to it. And this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to restore the connection to our roots, restore connection to that phantom limb. And I think this is what Jesus is telling us many times. But I want you to take a look at just the third beatitude for a second. It occurs right at Matthew 5, 5. And it's so simple. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, how in the world does that relate to anything that I'm talking about? Because in English, we don't get the real meaning of what's going on here. There are two operative words or phrases there. The first is the word that's translated as meek, and the other one is inherit the earth. If we can put those into proper perspective, I think it's going to start to show us something different. The Aramaic word there for meek is makika. And it means gentle. It means um, meek. It means humble. It can mean a lot of things. But when we get into the roots of it and the imagery that's there from a Semitic point of view and what it's really pointing toward is someone who has softened what is unnaturally rigid or hard inside. There's images of of liquefying, uh, melting, bowing down. Of course, it's about being submitted, being surrendered, back to those S-words again that we talked about previously. But that idea of melting inside, that idea of liquefying all the hard places the hard attitudes, the arrogance, the the need for dominance, all those things inside, to have them just melt away and bow down and be in the kind of relationship that Jesus is talking about. This is the idea, the basic idea behind this word meek here or gentle. And the second one is inherit the earth. And that in Aramaic is yeret ara. And it's an idiom, an idiomatic expression. And so Inherit the earth doesn't mean what we think it means. As an idiom, it means not acquiring a piece of property the way we usually think of inheriting the earth. What it means is the ability, the permission, the awareness to receive strength, to receive power, to receive sustenance from the earth, from all of nature, and of course from God acting through nature. To the ancient mind, land was everything. Land was survival. If you had land, you could plant it. You could grow crops. You could raise livestock. You could survive if you had land. To have a place to stand, to have a place that was yours, and to have a people that is yours on that land, going back generations to time immemorial, let's say, gives a rootedness and a tradition. In those ancient cultures, everybody knew where they stood. Everybody knew their place. And that place gave them a sense of identity, meaning, and purpose. It wasn't the deeper identity that Jesus was going for. That's why he's trying to break them through that. But it has its place as well. And we don't even have that. 
You know, how many people can afford to be homeowners anymore? We don't even have our little patch, this postage stamp as it would be, and I'll cover it over with concrete so you can't grow anything. But but the point remains: what do we have to stand on? What is it that is our heritage? Our parents' heritage and their parents' heritage. This is the mindset that's going on here. And so look at the paraphrase that's a possible Aramaic translation. That may sound strange to you, possible Aramaic translations. Well, the way Aramaic works with so many with words doing so many double duties, there can be dozens, if not hundreds, of possible translations. But here's just one. Ripe. Blessed means ripe. It means mature. It means fortunate. Congratulations to you. Happy are you. All those different ideas. Ripe are those. Fortunate are those who are not arrogant or domineering, who soften what is rigid inside and out. They are open to receive strength and power from the earth, from nature, a place to stand and live richly. That's it. When we move into this other attitude, when we soften what is rigid inside, when we melt and bow down, what becomes evident to us is that we have a place to stand. As long as we're scratching out for our dominant position and trying to take out of the hides of others what we think we need, we will never understand that we already have a place. It's right here. and It's right now. And it's, it's in the embrace of our Father in heaven. But to know that and to know that it is yours, it is your inheritance, it is your place, that makes all the difference. Want to talk about meaning and purpose and identity? You know, you know the closest I can come to this is, is Stephen Olga. They've been sitting on their patch of ground for 230 years, is it now? 225. 225, okay, I stand corrected. 225 years Stephen Olga's family has been living right where they are in the Los Rios district that bears their name. I don't even, I can't even imagine what that's like. You know, you know your parentage, you know your lineage for all that time and before you've been on that land that your great, 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 great grandfather scratched out the first adobe. I'm adopted, grew up in Los Angeles. I don't know who I am or where I come from, you know, but ultimately it doesn't matter if we can do the same thing internally. Stephen Ogle have the advantage of being able to do it externally and know what that means to be part of the Indian tribes that they are that go back into the mists of time and have all of that tradition. Most of us don't have that externally, but we can have it internally. We absolutely can. When I found the Jesus who changed my life, I felt connected to 4,000 years of known heritage and maybe more. You know what that feels like to this poor adopted kid? <laughs> Wasn't really poor, but adopted. I have roots now. To find those roots is everything to us. This is what Jesus is talking about in this simple beatitude. How do we find these roots? How do we find ourselves? These people defined by their ancestors understood this. By Jesus' time, the Hebrews were probably at least 2,000 years old. That's 20 generations. You know, We're 2,000 years from Jesus now. That's another 20 generations. We as Christians have 40 generations, 4,000 years of heritage that can absolutely be ours. But as that Orthodox convert said, you know, most of us, 
Western Christians, are looking at a heritage only 500 years long, as if that's all there is. Because since the Reformation, things so radically changed as they went west, we don't even recognize or give relevance or give any credence to the last or the previous 1,500 years of, of Christian church history. And yet that's where the richness is. That's where the roots are. And that's where these young people are trying to bridge the gap and come back to. They understand we've lost something in the last 500 years that needs to be bridged, and we need to infuse it. Not that everything was wrong in the last 500 years, but it needs to be balanced. The hyper-intellectualism of the, of the Protestant Reformation needs to be balanced again by the heart of the mystical and contemplative tradition. Bring these back together again, and that's what these kids are trying to do. They understand. They get it. They're trying to put their phantom limb back on, right? And when we look at Jesus in the wilderness, and I know I keep coming back to this, but it is so seminal, it is so critically important to understand what Jesus was doing. And I have it here at Matthew 4, but I don't think we need to actually read it. I think what we need to do is just understand what was happening. Jesus leaves his home, leaves his family, leaves his livelihood, leaves everything, and goes out into this wilderness, into this foreign place. And as I've said a million times, it wasn't 40 days, it was going to be a longer period. That's a a symbolic number, time of trial and testing into rebirth. How does he navigate the land? How does he navigate the three temptations that come to him from the adversary, the accuser? How does he do that? He does it by being absolutely hyper-present to where he is and who he is. He had been schooled up to that time in the traditions of his people. He could read the scrolls. He knew the scrolls. He had them written on his heart. And at every turn, he turns to the wisdom of his people. He turns to the connectedness of those 20 generations and counting. And he connects on a way that is so deep that he can move through the land, feel one with it. He can move through and transcend all of the human obsessions and compulsions that even he had to move through and overcome in his life. The scripture tells us he did everything that we had to do as a human being. And then get to the point where he realized he was one with his Father in heaven. He knew this. And then he could come back to be rooted in the land, to be rooted in our people, makes all the difference in the world. Jesus brings three quotations out of Deuteronomy, the, de- the, the, the earliest books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, the guidance, the instruction, and is able to apply them at every turn. We see this pattern. We see what he's doing. And so the question is, how do we do the same thing? How can we do this now in our time, in our modern age? Do we have to go learn how to speak Latin and Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic? And of course not. The answer is, you know, that wouldn't be a bad thing to do. That can be a beautiful thing to do. I took the time to memorize the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic because just saying it, just hearing those tones coming out of my own head, there's something there. It connects me in a way. And... And yet, it's not the crux of it. It's not what we absolutely have to do. But what we do need to do is to connect to the traditional practice of presence and kingdom that Jesus was talking about. But it's interiorly. Where we're planted, we don't need to move around. We may want to, and that's fine. But 
the exterior is only aiding the interior journey. If it is doing that and moving us on and calling us forward, great. But it is not the journey itself. It is not the transformation itself. We can do this anywhere, in any church or no church, which is exactly what we're trying to do here at The Effect. Consciously enter the flow of millennia of followers of Yahweh, of Jesus, feel ourselves as part of our people, kinship with everyone who came before us, feel them supporting us, girding us about. And for the first time, maybe realize that within this group, we have a place to stand. We are accepted. We are recognized as part of the group. We are understood because we have a place to stand with them. And the irony is that we have to unlearn old 500-year-old concepts and learn new 4,000-year-old traditional practices. Isn't that the weirdest thing? But that's the way it works. You know, The old is the new, and the new is the old, and there's nothing new under the sun, and all of that stuff as everything comes around and becomes one thing again. We need to practice traveling and living this path. Make it a concrete way of living life. We need to slow down, open up, and experience reconnection to our earth and to the turning of the earth. This is the contemplative way. It's everything that we've been talking about, that I'm always talking about, that we talk about in here for as long as you've been here. Jesus is always using images to try to teach. And one of the images that he uses is the image of the gardener. If you notice, Jesus never talks about the warrior. That's not so much his thing. Yeah, there's a time to fight. There's a time to do everything. Ecclesiastes tells us that. But the image that Jesus consistently uses is the image of the gardener, the image of the farmer. And if you think about the difference between a gardener and a warrior, a warrior is always moving through. It's imperialistic. It's a penetrating act. It's, it's violent and, and it's uh, single-minded. And you're always looking around for threats. And it's a... It's a, it's a anxious and and disruptive way of living life, even though sometimes we have to go there. Now you think about the gardener, think about the farmer, the one who just shows up patiently every day, every morning. Nobody's watching. Nobody cares. There's no banners. There's no trumpets. He just comes and he scratches in the dirt and he plants and and he waters and he nurtures. And as Jesus so beautifully said, he does all that and then he goes home and goes to sleep because he has no idea what's going on under the ground there. It's either going to happen or it's not. And he doesn't need to know. All he needs to do is do his part and show up diligently every day and tend the weeds and watch for coming weather. And as he stands with his toes in the dirt, discalced one that he is, barefoot, in the dirt, he can feel the turning of the planet. He feels part of the rhythms of nature. He's got a place to stand that makes sense. He pulls his food out of the soil itself and is connected. He is part of the earth. He is part of that circle of life. And yet he still transcends it at the same time. This is the image that Jesus gives us. It's all about finding our roots. It's all about connecting back to the earth that is our sustenance, right? God through earth, but also connected to the people who inhabit it and have inhabited our earth. I have one image that sticks with me, and it was about, gosh, it's getting to be, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, 
maybe 10, uh, when I was teaching that Bible college. And I had a group of young men that we became very close. And we all got the idea that we needed to go out to Death Valley. And uh, fortunately, it was February. And I still had my Volkswagen van again. So I think there was about six or seven of us that piled into this van. And uh, Marion actually let us go. And we took off. And we drove to Death Valley, and we left late enough in the day we were timing it um, because I had looked at the map and figured this all out. Got into Stovepipe Wells, this little town uh, in Death Valley, at about 11 o'clock at night. And uh, in February, it was like 76 degrees. It was absolutely perfect and clear as a bell. And I knew that there was a dune field just a few miles out of town. One guy babied out, and he went to bed. The rest of us got back in the van, and uh, we headed out the town and found the, the uh, dune field, parked the van, shut out the lights. We had some flashlights, and we just started walking into the dune field, you know, watching where we were going, you know, scorpions, snakes, or what else might be out there. There was nothing, just sand. And we walked and walked and walked until we could see nothing but dunes and these ragged mountains off uh, on one side. And then we turned off all the lights sat down on a dune, and I still remember that sand. It was really cold, and it was fine, like talcum powder. didn't feel like, uh, like beach sand that I was used to, really fine. And just waited for our eyes to adjust until we could see the sky. That's what I was looking for. I hadn't been in a dark sky in such a long time. To sit there on that dune and look up at that sky and see the band of the Milky Way across and just watch that whole thing turning like a living sheet, just changing, moving. If you sat there long enough, you could actually see stars going down and setting on this side and rising on this side. And I felt like I was part of the earth. I'm turning with the earth. I'm part of the rhythms of the earth. And it was just something that was so deeply rooting again to connect me to earth, to sky, to God. It was this spiritual experience that was so, so important. And I can return to it anytime I want and reconnect and remember the stars are out there right now. I just can't see them because the big star has blown it out for a second, but they're still right there. You know, and there's stars beneath our feet too, but we'll talk about that another time. When you think about all the healings that Jesus did in the New Testament, I'm not going to say that they didn't happen literally, but the most important thing, when you hear about the blind being restored, the deaf being restored to hearing, the lame being able to walk, the lepers being brought back into community, when you hear about those that were possessed that are cleansed and those who are dead that arise, if you think about every single one of those captives being set free, it is the restoration of that phantom limb, that peace that is missing, that came off when we got afflicted by something. It is the restoration of that peace that Jesus is most interested in. Son, your sins are forgiven. I know you came here so that you could be healed of your paralysis, but son, your sins are forgiven. You are reconnected. You are just as you were before. Do you see? This is everything that Jesus is about. To heal us. To restore us to wholeness. So that we know that we have a place to stand. And we know that we are rooted and connected to everyone who's gone before, everyone who's here now, and God always in the midst. 
Whatever it takes for us to have that desire, not to change churches necessarily, but to take that interior journey, to heed the call that is telling you there is something deeper, that there is something missing, there is a disconnect still deep in your spirit, and to move to find the healing that Jesus offers, that's what this journey is about. And that's what we're about to try to help. I know we don't do altar calls here, and there's a reason for that. The reason is we don't want to imply that a string of syllables saves you. But I'll tell you what, if there's anyone here who wants to make a deeper journey, come see us. Come see me. Come see Frank. Come see Marion. You know, talk to somebody because we will bend over backwards and carve time out and do whatever we need to do because people did that for me and it made all the difference. I still remember Father Erskine's name, a priest in an American Catholic church that I saw exactly once in my life. And I still remember his name and all that he did for me by taking me to a Catholic bookstore and introducing me to Thomas Burton and Brendan Manning and Henry Nowen at a time when I couldn't pull my head out to save my life. We will do that. Absolutely. Find someone. Find a way to go deeper. Come see us. And go deeper. And God bless that desire and God bless that sense of a phantom limb that keeps us wanting wholeness, seeking wholeness, and stopping at nothing until we find the truth that really makes us free. Let's pray. Ah, Father, wow, there is so much stuff going on around us. Help us as we even pay attention to all the external stuff that it still forms a pattern, makes a kind of sense that reinforces to us what we're here for, what it is that we're really doing. Help us not to get too frustrated or fearful or angry, but see in the trends and the changing of the guard here and of our lives and our world around us that you are still here in the midst. You're still in control And that we can hitch ourselves to your power and your sustenance and your strength. And in that, become strong and able to move where we need to move. Keep the desire stoked in us, Lord. Don't let us get lukewarm. That we want that wholeness. We want that fullness. We want a double portion of anything we think we want now. That will take us everywhere in your direction. And thank you for loving us and providing for us, Lord. Never let us forget. All of this is only possible because you did it first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.